Hello, everybody. First up tonight, we have Kathy Wolf. She lives in Kittery Foreside with the Brooklyn Brothers, two black cats. As far as I know, she still does. Her concerns of late focus on the climate crisis and the future of her neighborhood. Rather than letting it be taken over by high-end condos and pricey marinas, Kathy wants to keep it neighborly. She is a writer who has plied her trade for the Associated Press, UNH, Dartmouth, and Tufts, as well as having written a lot of personal essays. In the one she'll share tonight, she was inspired to take a big, silly risk just to make a person smile. Here's Kathy's story, Making David Happy. Why do we think it's our job to make other people happy, or at least make them smile? Maybe it's just me, but I doubt it. I think for each of us, somebody shows up in our lives that's just so miserable. They inspire us to do things we might not normally do just to cheer them up. That was the case for me late one night in a laundromat in Iowa. I first met David when I was a freshman at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I I was in the library, and he suggested we take a study break, although I didn't have any sense that he actually had been studying. Uh, So we went outside to smoke cigarettes. David was kind of cute in an outlaw sort of way. He was skinny. He slouched. He let his cigarette hang off his lower lip just like James Dean. And he was a poet, which meant he tended to be moody and depressed. (laughs) A really quick side note, I once heard Ernst Hebert, who's a New Hampshire novelist, say that he enrolled in the Iowa Writers Workshop in poetry and lasted about two weeks, realizing he was not suicidal enough to be a poet, so he switched to fiction. Uh, David and I never dated, but we became sort of hangout buddies or friends, lots of cigarettes, lots of study breaks. He shared his poetry with me. It was all about death, dark nights, and really sad dogs. And he had come to Coe after dropping out of Duke University, which is well known for its writing program. The reasons were never completely clear, although he alluded to drugs and suicide attempt. Coe College might not have been the best choice for David to make as his second school. The college was built on this this plateau. It was really small, but it was a high hill. And in the, in the winter, the wind would just whistle through there, like um, I think people like to say, like a knife. The, there were these belching smokestacks of a Quaker oat factory that rose up next to the, this plateau. And at the foot of the plateau, between the campus and the Quaker oat smokestacks, was a railroad yard where freight cars carrying hogs to slaughter often just stopped Sometimes it seemed like for days, and you could hear and smell the hogs if the wind was right. Anyway, I got out of there. I transferred to the University of Missouri the next year, my sophomore year. But I returned to Cedar Rapids sometime that winter. David was, at the time I looked him up, he was renting a dark room over a garage, uh, just a little apartment, one-room apartment, and he was, predictably, miserable even more so than I remembered him being. But maybe it was just that I was happier in Missouri than I'd been in Iowa. I was brought up to think that if you can just put things in order around you, things will be in order inside you and maybe even in the world. In other words, folding socks and cleaning the corners actually matters. 
So after David and I had a couple of beers and a hamburger and maybe another beer or two, I offered to help him clean his dirty apartment. It was already late when we started, me running around, sweeping, dusting, scrubbing, scrubbing up, and him picking up a single book and walking very slowly across the apartment to a bookcase and putting it in there. (laughs) I suggested uh, we take a load of clothes to the all-night laundromat, and I pulled the sheets off the mattress on the floor. He confided that he had been planning, probably for months, to dye those same sheets purple. And he actually even found in the mess that was his apartment a box of Ritz dye. I thought it was a great idea, since I doubted those sheets would ever be white again. So we took the dye and the sheets and maybe the rest of the dirty laundry, I really don't remember, to the laundromat about five blocks away. Did I mention that all this was happening in 1967? If you don't keep that in mind even you younger people, I'm not sure that the psychedelic goggles made out of car reflectors make a lot of sense. Someone in Missouri had given them to me, and I had brought them along as a joke. They were the small, round, brake light reflectors laced together with with, uh, pieces of leather, leather shoelaces, I think. They gave a red glow to everything and refracted everything, lights, faces, buildings. It was absolutely impossible to walk a straight line when you had them on. You felt like you were inside a kaleidoscope. I wore them about half a block, and then I handed them over to David. He put them on and would not take them off. (laughs) But even the glasses didn't seem to make him very happy. We were alone in the laundromat. It was probably 2 a.m. by then, watching the purple sheets and probably the rest of the laundry, going around and around in the wall dryer. And I said, I always wonder what it would be like to ride in a dryer and to spin around like that. It must feel like an unorthodox one-person tilt-a-wheel. David, still wearing the goggles, reached into his pocket, pulled out a quarter, and grinned. It was so good to see him smile. I don't think I even thought twice, except to make sure that the setting was on cool, not hot, and that he understood if I held up my thumb, he was to open the door so I could get out. I climbed in. I wedged myself against the dryer's round wall. I was smaller then. I fit pretty well. (laughs) David took off the goggles, actually took them off. He shut the door, and he put in the quarter. It started spinning. It was really fun, or at least interesting, for about maybe 20 revolutions. That was enough. So I put up my thumb, and David, still grinning, he opened the door of the dryer, but the dryer did not stop. (laughs) You know, I don't know whether it was broken or it was just whatever. It didn't stop. So air's blowing. I'm turning around. It was set for 10 minutes. It's back when you could get 10 minutes for a quarter. And I realized there was no way I was going to last 10 minutes. I need to get out now. That took six revolutions. (laughs) David stopped grinning. Actually, he'd stopped grinning when the dryer didn't shut off. Uh, when he opened the door. And he started to reach for me. No! Don't! That took two revolutions. I knew that I had to make a leap for it. I was going to pass out. I also knew that either way, passing out or taking a leap, I was running a huge risk of breaking my head, teeth, nose, or something else. So 
I just made my move. And at exactly the same time, David decided to grab for me, despite what I'd said. So we both tumbled out onto the sticky laundromat floor. Nothing was broken. And we laughed a long time before standing up. We retrieved the sheets. We walked back to his place. Actually, he walked. I wobbled. <laughs> it took half an hour for just my head to stop spinning. <laughs> I put the sheets on his mattress, did a little more straightening. And before I left, I gave him the goggles to keep. He smiled. <laughs> wow. <laughs> A sacrifice for, for somebody's smile. That's a beautiful thing, Kathy. <laughs> Next up, we've got Skip Clark, formerly from Agunquit, Maine, now lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, correct? And he's a retired businessman who, at heart, has always been a wanderer adventurer. Skip sometimes writes of his adventures, like sailing through gale storms on an old wooden boat from Maine to Cuba, singing Sinatra songs in local nightclubs, and completing seven full marathons. The best introduction to his story, first published 15 years ago, is to tell you that it's now been 35 years since his resolution to quit smoking. Skip is grateful to be standing before us, breathing, and about to recount this personal tale titled, So Many Lives Up in Smoke. Shortly after 4 p.m., April 19, 1980, I quit smoking for the final time. Johnny Kelly, the renowned pioneer of the Boston Marathon, was crossing the finish line at age 73 with his 50th completion of the Patriots Day Classic. <clears throat> his inspiration in that moment remained an indelible memory. My formative years occurred during the romantic era of inhaling ourselves into breathless pain and early death. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. My father-in-law's two-pack-a-day Winston habit led to his bitter premature end at age 63. His last conversation from the hospital bed was a goodbye to my brother-in-law, Charlie, whose own Winston habit would take him away at age 55, 20 years later. This is a happy note, isn't it? <clears throat> In the early 1950s, the new-to-the-market Kent's Micronite Filter promised lower tar and nicotine, and so my father switched from his lifelong devotion to Chesterfields for the classy new look of the black-and-white package of Kent's. But there was enough tar and nicotine left in the new brand to snuff out his life at age 56. While in the act of lighting his final filter, one April morning in 54, my brother Jim could no longer call for a Philip Morris with what was left of his cool's throat, his Irish tenor reduced to a whisper. Bob, the best friend of my life, purchased four packages of the aristocratic Benson and Hedges daily and seldom used a match, lighting one upon the other. Bob and I met at a time when our wives were hospitalized with similar lengthy disorders. We built a strong and binding friendship born of mutual support and understanding for the trial that each of us endured. All the more reason for my sorrow 
when he hit his living room floor at age 47 with a massive coronary. Missed by me these 27 years, his spark and dynamic for life, and missed as well by his young daughter, who was by, by then 10 years at the time. There is no m doubt in my mind that he had not smoked, he would be here today, finishing the years that should have been in his life expectancy. The list is too long for this article, but you understand my point. Cousin Alice, a devotee of Virginia Slim's, emaciated away in her final five-year battle with loss of lung and life. And her wonderful husband, Freddie, preceded her at age 52 with LSMFT. Lucky strike means fine tobacco. The same weekend, my cousin Joey, Freddie's brother-in-law, joined the death march at age 59, another early loss to the classy red packages of Paul Mall. Another good friend, a second Bob, defied the odds and lived to age 78 in Woodstock, Vermont, where he trailed his long lifeline of oxygen from room to room, gasping to his end, gazing wistfully from his window at the treasured garden he could plant no longer. How many millions of such stories across the nation and world? How many more to come? And those disgusting executives from Richmond, Virginia, had the gall to appear before Congress and state that nicotine is not addictive. If the tobacco industry did not exist, had never existed, it is inconceivable that such a drug could be licensed for sale today and allowed to unload its destruction on society. Is it possible in this America of the new millennium to elect a president with the stature of Lincoln, a man with the courage to emancipate unborn generations from the threat of tobacco. Does the tobacco industry have a higher right under free enterprise than each child's individual right to the unfettered pursuit of happiness? The removal of billboards and TV ads will not be enough so long as this most addictive drug is allowed to find its way into the marketplace. More doctors smoke camels than any other leading brand. It was a clever ad line of my youth. What a sorry joke. I'd walk a mile for a camel was another bit of Madison Avenue cleverness. And many of those who did are seen, seen in wheelchairs with air tanks in the supermarket aisles. Would you mind reaching that box for me, they ask. They no longer stand or walk any part of a mile. Meanwhile, the Marlboro man rides off into a setting sun with many a man is, while many a man is gurry-ridden into the bright light of an operating room to leave behind a lung or larynx or life itself. When Johnny Kelly turned on <laughs> Boylston Street that illustrious afternoon, there were many tearful eyes, and every pair of hands was raised in joyful applause for this septuagenarian display of endurance, this, module, this marvelous marathoner. A marathoner myself, I was thrilled to be in attendance. And then I realized that I was a hoax, a phony, a mere imposter compared to this man. 
although I had completed five marathons, I had retained the smoking habit in between training times. How could I applaud this hero and not at least be a hero to my own life and finally get rid of the butts? As Johnny approached the finish line, the crowd noise increased and in coast celebration with his admirers, he doffed his white painter's hat and high over his head he waved it vigorously to the finish. When he crossed the line, I reached into my shirt pocket and cast the last package of Kent filter tips into a trash basket by my side. Hearing that Johnny had been ill and could not attend the recent Patriots Day event, I phoned his home last week to thank him for the inspiration of 19 years ago, which most likely has saved my life. He had arrived that day following a two-month convalescence. Something wrong with my tummy, Skip. Just a nuisance. But I'm better now, he said. Happy as I was for my brief conversation with this 92-year-old champion of life and marathons, I will be most happy, as will he, if this small story inspires even one more person to resolve to begin the difficult journey. I never believed I could be completely free of the weed, but time is on your side if you stay the course, and you too can be free. You too can kick the habit. The following is by an unknown author. Smoking is an evil deed, and from the devil doth proceed. It stains your fingers, burns your clothes, and makes a chimney of your nose. (laughs) That's especially ironic since our very first show, someone left a cigarette in their pocket and almost burned down the place. (laughs) So, anyway, um, I'm just here to tell you the time is 6.55. You're listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci, and now Pat Spaulding will come and introduce our next storyteller to you. Okie dokie. Just a, a word on that last story. I never took up smoking, and I thank... Marilyn Johnson, a roommate in college, because every time I tried smoking, she would laugh and tell me how ridiculous I looked, and um, I was trying to look cool. So I never succeeded in looking cool with a cigarette, so why bother? (laughs) Next up, we have Steve Diamond. He's a homesteader and a long, lifelong gardener who studied anthropology at UNH and is the systems administrator right here at Portsmouth Community Radio, along with Amy Antonucci. He produces the New Hampshire Making Waves radio program, heard on this station each Saturday from noon to 1 p.m. His story tonight is titled, What High School Taught Me About America. The subtitle might be, How I Became an Activist. When I was a student at Dover High School, 1990 through 94, I tried not to stand out. At the, time, <clears throat> at the time, I thought I might be the only one feeling that way, but thinking back, I think it was a little more common than that. I went along with the program as the path of least resistance, but I wasn't fully invested in it. 
While there were a few teachers I really respected and learned from, generally the educational system seemed to have an intentionally directionless and meaningless agenda. Then sometime around my sophomore year, circumstances came together to help me better understand myself and my country. But before I get into that formative moment, does everyone remember how the Pledge of Allegiance goes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enough rep repetition, you probably got it down. <laughs> Did you know, though, that in harmony with America's core principle of separation of church and state, prior to 1954, the pledge did not include the words under God? Yeah. Yeah. I knew that. I, All right. I knew that. Mm -hmm. Great. Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. The 50s made some changes. <clears throat> I always felt that the last few words, with liberty and justice for all, nearly redeemed the rest of the oath and made worthwhile the daily ritual. I wanted to believe that while people all too often do horrible things, each human being has inherent goodness, and that the manifestation of our collective intention, that is government, must have a potential to be positive. But I was about to witness directly for the first time the deep corruption underlying my country's approach to foreign policy. So in the middle of my sophomore year, an even more directionless assortment of students than myself simply declined to salute the flag at each morning's pledge. I don't think they were trying to express anything other than a general disregard for the authorities they saw. The school's administrators probably realized that detention or suspension would be little threat to these already near dropouts. Many of the administrators were military veterans and probably feared this disengagement would spread to other students. Military recruiters always have had easy access to students at Dover High and most schools, frequently peddling leaflets in the cafeteria. Apparently, I'm reading between the lines here, an administrator asked an Army PR officer to run a mandatory all-school assembly with speeches and flags and uniforms and 80s rock songs and a huge projection video of Iraqis getting blown up with American bombs during the first Gulf War, a war that has never really ended and was going on at that time when I was a student. I could not believe the spectacle I was seeing. Most horrifying to me was the fact that many students were reacting positively to the production values of this crassest of appeals to our young reptilian brains and herd mentality a pep rally for militarism. I thought to myself that someone should say something, that surely someone would at any moment, but no one did, and I wasn't yet ready for that someone to be me. I felt a deep disillusionment which began to radicalize me. I think I realized then that unless everyone organized themselves to define the limits on how we interact with the other peoples of the world, some kind of self-serving evil would define those limits or lack thereof for us. I still had never seen self-organizing in action, nor an alternative narrative being asserted. But it didn't take me long after arriving at UNH for all that to change. I got involved in the Student Environmental Action Coalition, Amnesty International, and co-founded a group called New Hampshire Youth Mobilization. I can still hardly believe some of the experiences I've had as an activist. I was literally arrested and detained for a week simply for walking down a sidewalk near the free trade area of the Americas meeting while in possession of burglars, tools, and chemical propellants. That means medical shears and rubbing alcohol. Wow. Yet I also discovered that the system of control had real limits. 
when I and some friends seized the stage and the microphone at a Jean Shaheen breakfast to condemn her support for the death penalty, <laughs> or when I strode into the launching ceremony of an Aegis nuclear destroyer and yelled during the invocation, would Jesus launch a weapon of mass destruction, I created a different newsworthy spectacle instead of getting arrested. The more I learned, the more I decided that someone had to bring truth to the news to counter the continuous drone of public relations being churned out by corporate media and the state. That's why I still produce News You Need to Know each week for Making Waves here on Portsmouth Community Radio. While it's sometimes depressing to understand how often our country acts outside its principles, I believe we must take responsibility for our nation's actions and break the silence, the silence that I heard during the rock song at the pep rally for militarism, saw between the lines of the pledge and read on the pages of my history textbook. As the most recent example, the U.S., Saudi monarchy, and United Nations organized an election in Yemen. Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State at the time, said, This is another important step forward in their democratic transition. Yet there was only one name on the ballot, and he was vice president under the previous dictatorship. Now many countries are rushing to war with the goal of reinstalling that dictator to power, and the U.S. is helping to do it. The silence written between the lines of the news is fragile and deserves to be broken. At the very least, I want to ensure that no other 16-year-old feels alone in that silence. Yeah. <clears throat> the 60s, when I went to uh, college and finishing high school, that wasn't silent. <laughs> but now... Uh, yeah. All right. Christine Kelly is the president of Balance Business Performance, a consulting firm in Portsmouth that helps small to medium companies grow. She is also a speaker and a storyteller who lives on the seacoast with her dog, Lucy, and cat, Lizzie. <laughs> the title of Christine's story is When the Mold Breaks. So when I was little, I actually was the only one of the group of the five of us that um, trained myself to, in toilet training. I actually toilet trained myself because I didn't want to wait. In fact, I also um, learned how to tie my own shoes and taught myself to read because I figured if I waited for my mother, you know, it would take forever. So when I, when I went off to school, I loved learning. And I loved learning because I was so curious. I wanted to know everything I could, could find out about absolutely everything. So I was constantly learning. I was constantly reading. And I've had a couple of different careers. I started out in healthcare. And I would badger the pathologist asking him questions. Well, how'd that happen? And what do you do about that? And why did that person get this? And then I went back to school and I studied statistics, of all things, um, but I did very well at it. And then I continued to grad school. And at grad school, I did this on weekends, a full-time course load on the weekends, while I was traveling for work in a full-time job. And, by the way, buying a house and losing both a friend and my stepfather. So it was a very busy time, but I was able to do it all and do it well. After I graduated, I started doing consulting, and I did consulting in healthcare first. And they often gave me the most challenging 
projects. And in fact, I'd have six or seven groups that I'd have to balance all at once with different needs, different um, concerns, different fears. Because we were going in to essentially find money. (laughs) So that often translated into reducing jobs. So navigating that whole thing while working with the people was a real challenge. When I moved into financial services, I always got the meaty projects. For example, one of my first ones was I had to be um, a temporary C, uh, CFO at this company or controller at this company. I didn't know anything about finances. But when I asked my boss why he did that, he's like, well, who else would I give it to? You know, because basically I could do anything. And in fact, I love the meatier, the better. One of my favorite ones from that company was working over in London. And this project involved four different company, uh, countries, um, multiple um, exchange rates, different cultures, and different languages. And I had to bring that all together in a meaningful way that was understandable by the home office. And I did it, and I loved it. It was complex. It was tough. And my last project, I actually was the go-between between a technology group and the business side, and I, I virtually oversaw everything. In fact, there were over 32,000 pieces of data, and you could pick anyone out. And not only could I tell you where it came from, who used it, I could tell you the conversation around why we chose it and who was happy about it and who wasn't. I could tell you the reports that would be used in it. I could tell you, you know, how the clients would see it. And all the, ta- all the time I'm doing this, I'm traveling back and forth from here to Connecticut here to Connecticut. Um, I was taking classes, doing learning coaching skills and NLP and hypnosis and a variety of other things, and then exercising. And I had a very full social life. I'd be out listening to music or going to shows or out dancing constantly. And then I fell. And I fell hard, literally. I was checking into the hotel And there was a problem with the floor, and I couldn't get my footing, and I went down. I landed on my left knee and my right side, and it knocked the wind out of me. And the pain was so bad, it felt like a vice grip around my ribs. And it felt like a metal spike going from the middle of my back right out my sternum. And I had broken a rib and twisted a rib and irritated the disc, and everything was inflamed. It felt red and it felt hot, and it felt like I had 30 pounds of weight on top of me. Not having been hurt before, I figured, you know, okay, well, I'll just do what I have to do. It'll get better. But I didn't. So I, um, they gave me some medication. And the medication, you know, I had to go away on a trip to learn some other stuff. Um, and the medication, I would go start exercising, and all of a sudden, Two hours later, I'd be vomiting. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this exercise? Is it the movement that's causing me that, you know, to do this? It turned out it was the medication. But that happened for months where I didn't even know what it was. But all of a sudden, I'd be sick, nauseous, everything. So then um, I tried, let's see, started with osteopath. Going where they kind of try to twist your spine into into place, which is a lot of fun. Um, And then three rounds of physical therapy. And they basically got nowhere. So in the middle of all this, I was on other medication for pain and for muscle spasms. 
And the problem was it really screwed with my head. I mean, I couldn't think my way out of a paper bath. And what really, really scared me was there were several times where I'd put the tea kettle on and then go out and walk my dog, totally forgetting. And I'd come home to a burnt pot on the stove. Fortunately, nothing happened, but I just, it, that terrified me no end. So then moved on to um, acupuncture, which they couldn't really put the needles in because my back was so inflamed, it just, I couldn't stand it. It just inflamed it even more. Uh, massage, which was kind of funny because um, the woman who did it here in town, she didn't actually touch me because touching my back made it worse. So she did a lot of energy work, which actually kind of helped. And then I moved on to chiropractic and then more physical therapy. And throughout all this, you know, I'm trying to like, I'm setting goals, I'm trying to get a business off the ground, and I'm trying to get things done, and nothing was happening. And to make matters worse, I started to feel really weak. You know, I wasn't sleeping because there was no comfortable spot. I wasn't exercising because movement just sent the pain off the charts. And I couldn't eat right because my stomach was screwed up. So <laughs> it's kind of three strikes against me, right? So I started getting weak. I'd walk up the stairs to my office, and by the t you know, I'd had, had to stand there and catch my breath and get the energy to, to move forward. And I, I'd do something like I'd go to the grocery store and pick up cat food, and I'd, I'd walk in the door, I'd drop everything, open the door, the door to the crate, and just plop on the couch for an hour and a half, not being able to move at all. That scared me even more because once you start going down that spiral of lost stamina and not moving, there's nothing good down there. There's lots of other chronic conditions that I didn't want anything to do with. And having been healthy most of my life, that scared me again. So I found a program up at Dartmouth which was a month-long um, intensive physical therapy program. Eight hours a day of exercise and getting functionality back. And their theory is it's going to hurt, but do it anyways. So, so I was doing that, and I'm still trying to think of, well, how can I get all this stuff going, and how can I make changes, and using everything that worked the rest of my life. The only problem was nothing was working. So every day I felt like I was failing because I couldn't get anything done. And I couldn't think my way through things, which has been my go-to position. So that's when the mold, the mold broke. There was no way I could keep living like that, trying to be the person that I was, when obviously I was in no condition to do that. So when I came back from Vermont, I decided that I had to learn how to live my life differently. Those goals, I mean, I was used to setting goals way up, way sky high because nothing limited me. <laughs> I could do whatever I wanted. So now I had to learn, well, how do I set a meaningful goal that I could actually achieve? Because there's nothing worse than butting your head against the wall and not getting anything out of it. So I'm learning how to do that now. And I'm also learning to put up with um, things not getting done. Or to have really long timelines. I mean, this is really hard for me. It's like, oh, I can't do everything right now? <laughs> so, and I have to pick and choose. I actually have to sit there in my day now 
and say, you know, exercises, I have to do that because that's the only way I'll get stamina back. So that's a thing I have to do. But everything else, it's like, okay, do I take the dog for a long walk or do I go to the grocery store? And if I go to the grocery store, what can I leave in the car to bring in tomorrow because I can't carry it all in today? And that kind of minutia just drives me nuts because I'm used to thinking these nice, eerie, complex thoughts and to have to dwell on that. So while I'm learning how to establish this new life, and I can't really, I don't really have a clear vision of it yet. It's still all in process. But I do know, I have a feeling that it's going to be much closer, more intimate, much more personal than the life that I had before. And while I can't see it, I am starting to feel just a little bit curious. Oh, oh yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Christine. <laughs> I'm curious, too. I just had a little uh, rain fart myself. But, um, I'm now going to introduce Amy Antonucci, who is a longtime volunteer for WSCA. For over 10 years, she and Steve Diamond have produced Making Waves on Portsmouth Community Radio. And now, Amy also loves being part of the True Tales crew as our fine announcer. She lives in Barrington, New Hampshire, in a small permacultural homestead where she and Steve grow gardens and keep animals. For the past few years, Amy's also been helping take care of her father, a little old Sicilian man, who you'll hear more about in Amy's story, Who Belongs in a Zoo? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Couldn't quite give up my notes, so... I called my father the other day. He is a little old Sicilian man. Now in assisted living, mostly because of his increasing dementia. I can't say that he's adjusted fantastically there. He calls it the place where I sleep. (laughs) And he regularly calls me to tell me, Amy. They got me in jail over here. You got to get me out. I'm an American. (laughs) The past few years, I've stepped up to be this man's caretaker. Not so much in his day-to-day care, but in terms of making decisions for him, managing his finances, organizing his care, and his social life, and everything. So, of course, he calls me with all of his issues and all of his complaints. I find this very hard. In fact, I find this so hard, sometimes I wonder if I am going to survive my father's old age. I've realized I do not have the patience to answer the same question ten times in a five-minute period. And I am not good at following the sheet of rules that I was given for caregiving of dementia, people with dementia. What I don't really have is this issue I hear people talk about in terms of role reversal. 
I hear from people, well, it's really hard. My parents took care of me, and we had this certain relationship, and now that's really shifted, that I have to be the one in charge. And for me, that's not particularly different. I grew up in a really chaotic household. I had an Italian father and an Irish mother, and both more than lived up to those incredible, you know, stereotypes. (laughs) The fiery part. They were right there. Also, my mother was very frustrated and very limited. She had an illness that was slowly taking away her ability to walk, and she needed care, which I provided. We also had a ton of animals. We always had cats. We had a dog. We had parakeets and gerbils, a lot of gerbils. Um, We had hamster and salamanders and turtles, one of which my brother named after me. Oh, and I had a small, very active brother. We'll leave that at that. So it really was a bit of a zoo there in more ways than one. And my reaction to this, as a really very sensitive little girl who did not do very well with this sort of unpredictability, was to try to organize our lives. Relate to you, Christine. Our schedules, our holidays, and our house. And you won't believe what happened when I left. I was really needed for that, but that's another story. (laughs) I felt like it was my job to keep everyone on track and behaving well. Which, of course, as a little girl, wasn't very easy to do. In fact, was impossible to do. But it was still really encouraged. I was the oldest child. I was a daughter, Sicilian household, half. So they pretty much expected me to take that role. And although I left at 18, I do admit that even now, 25 years later, I continue to feel a bit compelled and get some satisfaction from keeping things in order, keeping things neat and tidy and moving along well. And I'm not bad at it. I inherited my mother's very good Irish memory. I'm good at multitasking, setting up schedules, putting together calendars. But I keep getting handed these organizational challenges that I'm not quite up to. So I called my father the other day. We've been talking more. We started actually talking every day or two after my mother died about six years ago. It was more than we had talked in years. But he was so lost. My mother had not been kidding when she'd said she was the brains behind the operation. (laughs) Um, My father and I went on like that for a while. Then his health and memory started to to degrade further. And he started needing me more and calling me more, sometimes much more. If I wasn't there, he would leave an answering machine message that was exactly the same. Amy, this is your father. I guess you're not home. Give me a call when you get back. Now sometimes he can't seem to remember to call me or maybe how to call me. 
And while there is relief at not having sometimes as many as 14 of those messages on my machine every day, I'm also really uneasy when I don't hear from him. Is this no news is good news or they come before the storm? And it's getting hard for me to reach him because the truth is he can't always hear his phone ring or properly work it. But this time, he did pick up. I asked him what he'd done that day, which, um, by the way, is already against the dementia caregiver's rules. But he actually did remember this time. So um, I said, Dad, what did you do today? And he said, well, they showed a movie here. This really good movie here in the building, you know, in that room, that big room. They showed that movie. I said, what movie? Oh, you know, the one with the actor. He's famous. He's a very famous actor. And there's a woman who's in it, too. I think she's from another country. I think in Europe. So, you know, that one. And then there were animals. I said, okay, uh, any more you can give me. And then a miracle occurred. He said, Matt Damon, it's Matt Damon. That's who was in it. Yeah, it was Matt Damon. And he had that girl there. And then there were the farm animals. And I realized what he was talking about. We had just seen this movie. So I said, oh, Dad, you mean we bought a zoo. Anyone see that? Really good movie. It's a great movie, Dad. I'm so glad you got to see it. Did you enjoy it? You know, we bought a zoo? Yeah, yeah. That was the name. We got a zoo. I said, no, actually, Dad, it's we bought a zoo. We got a zoo. No, it's we bought a zoo. We fought a zoo? <laughs> no, 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 Dad, we, we bought a zoo. We, we fought a zoo? No, bought, bought, we bought a zoo. Spell it for me, Amy. B-O-U-G-H. Oh, uh, uh, L? Did you, was there an L in there? Okay, no, Dad. Dad, wait. Here, here we go. You go to a store. You take an item. You bring it to the cash register. You give them money. They give it to you. You leave with it. What have you done? I bought something. Yes! Yes, that's it! We bought a zoo. Oh, we bought a zoo. Yeah, that was it. And it was so good. Had that Matt Damon. And, you know, he liked Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn. He was, he was really good. So, so I liked that film. That was a good film. You know, we got a zoo. <laughs> I actually drew in breath to correct him again. When I felt something inside me shift. And crack a little bit. And I thought, does it matter that he gets this right? Is knowing the name of this movie going to make him have less dementia? Is it going to protect me from getting dementia? Is it going to make him a calmer person? Or make our lives any saner or easier? And... Who is behaving irrationally in this situation? The man with the brain disorder who cannot remember this, cannot, or the woman who will not let it go. <laughs> so I took in another really deep breath. In the midst of this 
messy, uncontrollable chaos and said to my father, Dad, I'm really glad you liked We Got a Zoo. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> Our final storyteller will be Michael Lang. He's a local writer and storyteller from Durham, New Hampshire, who enjoys sharing tales of all sorts. Michael educates and entertains with fables, folk tales, and myths from around the world, <coughs> as well as with his own fictional and nonfiction stories. He studied outdoor education at UNH and for nearly a decade was a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide. But now he works through his small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, as a writer and storyteller. In the spirit of starting fresh, Michael will tell us the true tale of his career change from outdoor educator to writer and the unexpected occupation that filled the gap between them. His story is Scrubbing Up a Pearl. <laughs> starting new, a fresh beginning. The thrill of discovering what's beyond that next horizon. Is that why I'm sitting here on the end of a dock scrubbing oysters? I am an oyster scrubber. This is not exactly the career that you dream of in high school while filling out those aptitude tests. Mm, yes, Mr. Lang, we have concluded that you are indeed fully qualified to scrub oysters for the rest of your life. Sweet. It's not the sort of thing that you boast about at fancy dinner parties and soirees. Darling, it's been years. What are you doing these days? Well, I'm an oyster scrubber. Really? Tell me more. Well, I pretty much sit on a dock all day and I scrub oysters. There's not much to tell. Enchanting, dear. No, 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 no. This is not exactly where I envisioned my next step of professional growth going. But then again, if you had asked me that last year that I worked at the ropes course... Hey, Bear, well, that's the name that everybody knew me by over there. Hey, are, are you going to be here next year? I probably would have said, yeah, absolutely. The truth was, the vision impairment I'd been born with, the one that had been progressing all those years over the course of my entire life, was making things harder and harder. And every day at the ropes course, there was some new challenge, some new challenge that was being caused by my eyesight. Whether I wanted to admit it or not, it was the truth. It was time to move on. But to move on to what? I started telling stories at local elementary school as a volunteer, my former elementary school. I started writing short stories, was submitting them to publishers, and I was getting lots of lovely letters of rejection. But those weren't really paying the bills. That was when a friend, one of the parents of the neighborhood gang, stepped in and said, hey, can I help you? He works in the Career Center over at Southern New, Southern New Hampshire University, and he offered to share some words of wisdom with me, and after about two seconds of careful consideration, I eagerly accepted. Absolutely. I could use all the help I can get. So we began meeting. Our first session was pretty simple. We sat down at my parents' dining room table, and we started making a list. Start with everything you enjoy doing, Mike. Nothing was out of bounds. No idea was too outlandish, well, except for maybe flipping burgers on the International Space Station. 
But I know from my personal experience, mountaineering and backpacking, you can only eat reconstituted food out of a bag so many times before you dread the thought of a meal. It was then time to make sense of things. My parents' living room was covered with these enormous sheets of paper that had all my ideas, broad categories, specific possibilities. They were all laid out, and now it was time to sort fantasy from reality. Flipping burgers on the space station fell into the category of fantasy, but it hasn't stopped it from showing up in my writing now and then. (laughs) It took about a week, but finally, all of this chaos was organized into something manageable. Now that I knew what I wanted to pursue, it was time for the hunt to begin. But where? How? And that was when my mentor, my advisor in all of this, said to me, it's all about people. It's all about who you know. Keep your options open. You never know where things are going to lead. Maybe not what you want to be doing today, but it might lead to what you want to be doing. Maybe tomorrow or maybe the next day. And so I began talking to people. The next thing I knew, I was talking to a friend of a friend who met a guy who saw this guy at the bar who was sitting next to a guy on the plane back from Cleveland, and before I knew it, I was calling giants in their fields of expertise. Uh, Hi, my name is Michael Lang. Uh, I'm in the midst of a career change, and you know, I'm really interested in your field, and I'd really like to talk to you if you have time in the next week or so, and you know, find out how you got started in this, and well, if you could give me any advice. That was my song and dance. If you'd be willing to talk to me, Give me some advice. After all, I had been told by my mentor and my guide, don't bother asking for a job. Usually, they'll either tell you they're not hiring, or they'll send you to someone else who will tell you they're not hiring. (laughs) But there are two things you can count on. One, people love to talk about themselves. (laughs) Two, people love to give advice to anyone who will listen. (laughs) And so that was the open door to wherever I wanted to go. And after the phone calls came the face-to-face meetings of firm handshakes, the professional greetings, and my list of questions. Always the questions. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. You know, I really would like to know how you got started in this field. Really, is, is that normal? Is, uh, does everybody take that route? What, what about education? Do you, do you think a, a bachelor's of science degree in, in outdoor education would, would, would overlap into that or... Do you think I, I need something more specific, something, something more advanced than that? Oh, thank you so much for your time. You know, I have one last question for you. I, I brought a copy of my resume with me, and I was wondering, if this happened to show up on your desk, what would you think? Is there anything that's missing? Is there anything that really jumps out to you? Oh, you can keep that. No, I got plenty of copies of that. And feel free to share that with your colleagues and, and to show it to your human resources department. No, that's fine. Well, yes, yes, actually, I am an Eagle Scout. I'm, I'm glad you noticed that at the bottom. Oh, how does, how does knowing how to tie a sheep shank help in the workplace? That's a good question. That's a really good question. You know, the, the sheep shank is a knot that not many people really know. It's, it, it's one of those knots that's not really used a lot because it's to bypass a damaged part of a rope. But if you think about that, if you think about the rope as being the organization as a whole, right? And, and here's this part that's been damaged. It's weak, and maybe, maybe that's somebody who's really key to the project is out on leave, or maybe something really important, a, an important piece of equipment 
has been damaged in a storm or something, well, that's going to affect the whole organization. And it's also going to affect everything that it's tied to. Hey, you see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> but if there is some flexibility in that rope, if we can take this section here and bring it around and tie it below and bring this section that's below and tie it above, now that damaged part is being supported by the rest of the rope. And the whole organization is stronger and can stand up and pull its weight, really, and what it needs to do. Yes, you're right, that, that BS under degrees and certifications, yeah, it probably stands for more than bachelors of science. You're, you're probably right about that. <laughs> to my utter amazement, a few weeks after one of these conversations, this particular one, in fact, I received a phone call. Hey, Mr. Lang, um, there's a professor at the University of New Hampshire who's doing this oyster restoration project, and he's looking for some extra help. What do you think? Are you interested? Well, I remembered the words of wisdom I'd been given to keep my options open. And I thought about this opportunity for about five seconds. Worst case scenario, it would be far better than the summer I spent shoveling horse manure. <laughs> and worst case scenario, the pay would be better than that summer as well. So I eagerly accepted. By the end of the week, I completed a tour of Jackson Labs over on the Great Bay Estuary, and I was ready for my first day at work. Well, it turns out that oysters are the equivalent of fine dining for our local crabs here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And so to protect them, the researchers raised these little crab larvae in giant fish tanks. But in the wild, they'll attach onto the shells of the older generations. And so all the researchers went around to local seafood stores and they gathered up a couple dozen tons of clamshells. Clams, oysters, eh, close enough. In reality, any hard object will do. Well, when the oysters are big enough, they're moved from these giant fish tanks out into these wire cages that are hung off the end of the dock into the waters of the estuary. And the oysters will feed off the water as they filter it, and they're still safe from their bottom prowling predators. But being so close to the surface, algae can build up on the oysters, and this was where I came into the picture. <laughs> For it was my job to haul up these cages and scrub these little oysters clean. <laughs> and so, for the entire summer, I led a double life. By day, I was the oyster scrubber, savior of oysters throughout the Great Bay Estuary. By night, I was a starving artist, trying to piece words together into coherent paragraphs and stories while fumbling with my guitar and music. But not today. Today, on the last official day of summer, there is a golden ray of sunlight shining down from the heavens above because I have just received my first letter of acceptance. My oyster scrubbing days are over. I'm going to be a writer. Well, you know, part-time at first. I mean, I just quit my job. I got to keep my options open here. <laughs> scrubbing up a pearl. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, Michael. I'm curious, Michael, was Ian Walker that guy or that professor? Uh, He'd had something to do with... Uh, there were three different professors working oh, okay. on it, and I cannot remember which one I was actually working for. Oh, all right. 
Yeah, I just took woodworking from him, and he had something to do with starting that. There were a lot of people involved. It was a huge project that's been going on for like the past 10 years. Interesting. (coughs) Who knew? You knew. Well, we thank all of our storytellers and our studio audience. Say hi, studio audience. For being here tonight and bringing things to life.